Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on the phone from the band House of Lords, it is a singer, James a Christian. The new album is New World, New Eyes, and it is out, of course, uh, later this month. Uh, welcome back, uh, Alain Niven. Alan, how are you? I'm very well this morning. Uh, yes. I hope you are too. Yes. Yes, I am. Now, we uh, last week were talking about bands being sandboxed and and stuck, you know, on the uh, Ronnie Atkins interview. Uh, House of Lords was a band that was signed to Simmons Records, and I don't know how Simmons Records operated. Uh, I'm assuming Gene was hands on and took care of stuff. But for you, with some of your bands, how? You know, was Great White ever sandbox? Were they ever the toy of some record executive? Or And you had mentioned something last week about Pebbles on a Beat, Doug Morris or something like that. Uh, were Great yeah, White... Doug Morris, who ran Atlantic. What was that comment. Yeah, was, was Doug... Uh, not Doug. Was was Great White a pebble on a beach? Or, or, or Because I, I've always listened to their music and they are successful. But I always thought they should have been... Mm more successful? Because I don't think they ever were an arena act in Canada, at least. Certainly not. Well, we hit the wall a couple of times uh, politically. Uh, the first time was in 1984 uh, when the band was signed to EMI USA, um, which was run by a guy called Rupert Perry. And the A&R guy was a guy called Gary Gersh. And I managed to build up a certain amount of excitement around the band to the point where after um, a legendary night at the Troubadour where people were literally six and seven deep around Doheny trying to get in and the place is already packed, um, we ended up getting eight written offers from record labels, which was virtually unheard of. Now, the first observation I'd make was obviously I was a greenhorn and should not have allowed the attorney for the band to go out there and solicit that many. Uh, we only needed two or three offers, tops. Um, so there was a the case of the, of the lawyer using the power of the band and the inexperience of the manager to get his own back on some people and use the band as a negotiating pawn. Um, we were advised that Gary Gersh was somebody that we should go with. So we went with Gary Gersh and I'm not revealing that much here to say that he's one of the individuals in my life whose name became a verb. In other words, people in Los Angeles would, look at you and say, have you been gushed yet? Which meant being screwed over. And in Gary's case, he had the feather in his cap of being the band that signed, of being the label rather, that signed Great White over seven other labels, which was a feather in his cap. He's doing his job. And then he subtly undermined us time and again because he wanted to take over from Richard Perry, and he wanted to say, I signed Great White, they weren't a success, and it's Richard's fault. And w we became a part of that political maneuvering, which was a problem. 
Um, but you got problems at record labels because of the revolving door. Um, when Great White were re-signed to Capitol, the president was um, Don Zimmerman, really a first-class guy. Um, I love Don, really good guy. You could talk straight with him. He could talk straight to you. Um, he, he was he was the kind of earthy guy that you would associate with somebody like Bob Seger, who was one of he was one of Bob Seger's biggest biggest fans. Biggest fans. I want to throw um, something at you real quick because you mentioned but, Gary Gersh, but I, I'll let you finish that. But listen to this: Los Angeles Times. Because I looked up Gary, I, I knew we were going to talk Gary, so I looked him up. They had an article that ran July twenty third, nineteen ninety three, and this is the title. It says Capital Punishment. Twenty acts get pink slips. Music CEO Gary Gersh pulls the plug on Smithereens. Great White, Billy Squire, and others, right? And then it's, well, uh, here's, yes. here's the thing. Let, let, let's get some historical truth in there. When I found out that Gary Gersh was coming in, I went to Hale Milgram, um, and Hale and I did not, uh, we were a little bit of chalk and cheese uh, for various reasons, and I went to Hale Milgram and I said, we want out. I am not going to be on this label if Gersh is on this label running this label. Oh, but you got to hear the rest of this article. The rest of this article is going to have your blood boiling. But okay. Well, no, he he let us go. And he also put a check for $200,000 in my hand so as I could keep the band alive while I moved them on to another label. And we moved on to Zoo, which I already had in the pipeline. We We went to Milgram and we said we were going because we did not want to have anything whatsoever to do with Gary Gersh, um, who I have not a single positive thing to say about. All right, because I, I, I am going to read this. It says, uh, the long-rumored roster slashing is the latest step in a multi-million dollar plan to energize the Thorn EMI label. Because getting rid of Great White was going to energize. And then it says here, this is the part I like, EMI, EMI brass are also shopping for a $2 million private corporate jet and have allocated a million dollars to upgrade the landmark Capitol Tower. So they're they're firing the smithereens and television and Great White and Billy Squire and all the time. They're oh, like, we're going to get a $2 million jet. <laughs> well, damned if I can remember what his name was. But uh, the guy who was running uh, Capitol EMI USA and was based in New York, he would fly his freaking Bentley out every weekend so as he could have his Bentley in LA and then have it flown back so as he could have it in New York during the week. This is also a guy who had a crane pulled up alongside the tower so as he could get an oversized desk lifted through the roof because they couldn't get it up the elevators. I mean, the arrogance and the expense and the wantonness of some executives back in that day was just extraordinary. Well, the, just uh, extraordinary. The the article mentions a couple of names. Let me see if they they ring a bell. So you said there, there was Hale Milgram. So it says Hale Milgram, Art Yeager. Right. Do you remember Art Yeager? Art Yeager, Art Yeager was Hale's hatchet man. Okay. Um, he was he he was you know they played good cop bad cop. Hale was the old hippie pipe smoking hippie who loved everybody, um, especially uh, Bonnie Raitt. And Art was the one who would slash and burn and try and cut back your contract and so on and so forth. So 
they were the good cop, bad cop team of, of Capital at that time. And there was one one other name. It says uh, Gersh was named to run the label by Charles Koppelman, chairman and there chief. There you ex- go, chairman That's and chief the guy executive with the Bentley of Bentley in the desk. Charles That's Koppelman, the guy with the ben- Bentley in the desk. And and um, I guess Capital you know, was doing. I was just going to say, Capital was doing great at the time because the article says, Duran Duran is currently the only Capital act with an album in the top 40. (laughs) One band. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. But I'll tell you something else. um, And this is factual. Um, Great White were the most profitable, profitable band per unit sold on the label. In other words, we delivered our... um, records less expensively than anybody else um and it required a lot less marketing expenditure for the band to sell records because we were a working band we were out there we were on the road and we had a following we had an audience so during their period on capital they were the most profitable band per unit sold so I don't know what sort of energies they're talking about, but the one piece of energy I will give you is here's the fact. Gersh did not drop us off the label. I went in there and said, I'm off the fucking label. And I took Havana Black with me as well because they were on Capitol. And Hale Milgram gave, gave up Havana Black as well so as I could take them off. I said, I am not having a single band on a label run by Gersh. And see, and, and you're going to love this. Uh, four years, 11 months later, June of 1998, the Wall Street Journal re- uh, reports EMI Group PLC, blah, 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 uh, Gary Gersh, head of its Capitol Records, uh, is e- effective immediately, will be leaving the label. So not even five years later, they fired him. So tough luck. Out. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's, there's your great energy. Um, but, you know, that's, that's Koppelman being unaware of what happened between Gersh and Rupert Perry. And Rupert Perry, uh, he's an English guy. He was from London. He was a really good executive, too. He, you know, the likes of him and Zimmerman were what made Capital, Capital strong in that 80s period. Um, and it was the professional um, corporate climbers who come in with their, their ambition before all else. And, you know, that goes, that's an anathema to me because every single decision that I made was in the interest of my band, not myself. I went up and fought against uh, David Geffen and went nose to nose with David Geffen when other people were terrified of him. But that was my responsibility to look after my act. Um, that, I, I think it's a, um, a fairly well-known fact that I was the only manager who ever got David to renegotiate an extant contract. And that went against my relationship with Geffen. And there were an awful lot of people who were more interested in their relationship with Geffen and what he might do for them in their careers than they were in looking after their bands. But my attitude was, I'm here to look after my band. So all my decisions are going to be based on that. And if that means I'm going to go and fight one of the meanest motherfuckers in the valley, then I'm going to go and fight one of the meanest motherfuckers mm. in the valley. As you should. And and by the and way... And, the, and we had our screaming matches, Geffen and I. The, I mean, there was... I remember clearly one day that I was walking into Geffen and he was coming down the, uh, the, the bending staircase and we were going to pass each other. And as, as we got level, 
he pushed me against the wall, put his face about two and a half inches off mine and said, when am I going to get my fucking record? Meaning use your illusions. And I looked at him and I said, when it's fucking ready, David. And he stared at me for a moment and then walked off. And then walked off. And, you know, yeah, my, my immediate thought was, this, this, this guy can destroy me. He can bury me. He has that power in this town. But I think in that moment, he realized we're only here at this moment because of me being the manager of the band up to this point. I've delivered for you so far. I'll deliver for you again. But you've got to deliver for me too. Yep. And and by the way, uh, the, the day that Gersh was hired, the uh, Associated Press uh, described him this way. Gersh broke into the record business as an employee in the Capitol Records mailroom. So... <laughs> So, so he was the guy delivering the mail to the to the people, and he made it all the way up. Well, and that's that's how David Geffen started. He was in the mailroom at yeah. William Morris. Now, but and, Gersh uh, Gersh worked at Geffen Records as a vice president for artists and repertoire. So, was that where the you know the, why the, Geffen and Geffen didn't fire him? The only two people who were really successful there were um, Kolodner and Tom Zutout, and Gary hadn't signed anything. Of, of any note whatsoever. And he finally, finally got lucky because he got uh, turned on to this kid from Seattle who are opening for one of his lesser acts, Sonic Youth. And um, they went in there and they said, you need to look at this guy. And Gary signed this kid from Seattle. And uh, that was his only hit on Geffen. And, and, it, was a, and it, was a, it wasn't something he quote unquote discovered it was somebody coming into his office and saying, you really need to look at this guy. So he signed him and he got lucky. And it was a small deal. I, you know, I think you'll find that the uh, original Nirvana Geffen record was a very small budget. They weren't expecting anything out of Nirvana much. And uh, just before we get over to James Christian, I just want to let fans know that as I was doing the, uh, the wonderful interview with James, uh, the uh, city crews, they, they sent out three crews to cut trees to the north, south, and, and west of me. So as I'm talking, you hear a little sort of chainsaw buzzing in the back. Not distracting at all, but I just want to let you know before you get into it. And Alan, I will finish uh, on this with, uh, with Mr. Gersh in the uh, Associated Press story, and you're going to love this. It says, with the hiring of Mr. Gersh... Capital hopes to broaden its luster and help reestablish it as the premier record company in the business. And, of course, um, that, well, five years later. <laughs> you must love that, right? Did he, did he broaden its luster? Did he what? Did he broaden its luster? No, he didn't broaden its <laughs> luster. And, uh, you know, Gary went back to sort of semi-obscurity. His brother has done well running a um, an agency, the Gersh Agency, um, placing actors in movies and TVs and stuff. But uh, no, Gary, Gary's not on my Christmas list for Christmas cards, I'm afraid to say. I'm afraid to say. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm not a huge fan. Anyway, uh, on that, let us get over to James Christian. Uh, House of Lords has a new album, and uh, here is uh, the one, the only, James Christian. We are speaking with House of Lords, James Christian. The new album, New World, New Eyes, is out soon. Uh, James, as we say, uh, bonjour. Uh, how are you? Bonjour to you. 
I'm doing very well. Being quarantined uh, has not been much of a difference for me because I'm pretty much in the house every day and all day long anyway. Yeah, kind of like me. Uh, I, I live in a little village of 600 people and they're like, oh, how's quarantine for you? And I'm like, it's pretty much exactly <laughs> like it was uh, two months ago. I, there's, there's, I deal with the squirrels and the raccoons and, <laughs> you know. That's great. Yeah, yeah. anyway, let's... Uh, let us talk this new album. So first of all, the album was supposed to be released in early May and it got postponed. Let us talk about that. In terms mm -hmm. of a strategy, you know, a lot, there are some bands and some artists that feel we've got a captive audience, let's give them the music and they will sit and digest it all day. And others have said, you know, let's wait. Let's wait till we can give them the whole Monty. We'll, we'll give them the physical product, the CD, the digital. We'll, we'll make sure it's all available at the same time. Um, right. Talk about your decision. And I know a lot of it is spurred by the record company, but talk about this decision. And is it a good thing to wait or should it have come out? I mean, there wasn't really much. I think a 30, 30 day window of uh, you know postponement isn't that big of a deal for people. And uh, number one, that's the first thing. And number two is we didn't even get to do the video yet. I was supposed to go in like the day before all of this happened. And uh, then they shut down the studios for, at the video facility where I was going to film. So we have no video either to promote the record. So it kind of made sense to just wait till everything kind of calmed down and let us put everything out. I think it's probably the best idea. It really is the best idea. So uh, talk to me about the about the album musically. In terms of, you know, you go back to the first couple of albums, just absolute mm -hmm. great stuff. Uh, what in terms are you trying to say on this one? Uh, do, you, do you have a, a House of Lords classic sounds that you want to ascribe to, or do you push boundaries at this point? I think you push boundaries. I mean, re, re, you know, the safe thing to do is just keep re, re, replicating what, what was successful. But um, I, I just don't think that musically advances you in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I've taken many chances, and uh, I've caught shit for it from a lot of people. You know, people that said, "Why? Well, I really like Demons Down. Why don't you do more like that?" I mean, that's easy to say, kind of difficult to do. You know, you get a chance at it once. You write it, you record it, and you go, "That was, that was then. What, what do I have now to offer?" So uh, on this particular album, uh, New World, New Eyes. To me, it was about songs. I wanted to go back to the basics of songs, not long, drawn-out album cuts where you have seven minutes to make a statement. I wanted it to be three and a half minutes, and that's the hardest thing to do is make a great song in three and a half minutes as opposed to taking the, you know six or seven minutes to do it. So this song is full of songs. If, if I were to say uh, in 1980 we recorded this album, we would have six singles on it. And that, that's the way I approached it. I approached it in, uh, with, again, Mark Spiro was my songwriting partner on, on this particular uh, album, along with Jimmy, obviously, doing uh, all his musical tracks. But uh, we, we took it in that direction. I just wanted great songs. And I think that's what we accomplished. In terms of getting great songs, what, is, what makes a great song in this, in this day and age? I mean, is it a, a, in terms of lyrical content? Is it musical content? Is it length? How do you define no, a great it's not, song? <laughs> it's not length. It's definitely not length. It, but it, it's, it's nice when you, can, when you can get your point across in such a short time that somebody goes, I got to hear that again. So um, I think it, the, the combination has to be all of the above, which is um, musical 
Um, it has to have hooks and it has to have a great lyric and a great message. Now, when I say great, I, I don't mean that everything we do is great. I just mean to me, that's what it has to have. So I have to believe in it that much in order to, to start recording and saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to put my name behind it and I'll take whatever comes. So I, I feel that way on this record that it's, everything stands up. Uh, there are a couple of songs that are out of that mold a little bit, just a little bit. But uh, for the most part, I would say eight to ten of those songs fit in that category. Now, in terms of getting this to the fans, we, we, we can't have shows just yet. But how important is the live show to promote and, and have it as a vehicle for an album and get out there and say to the fans, listen, we're not just uh, the old stuff. We're not just House of Lords. We're not just these old things. Mm -hmm. We're a new band and it's important to get out there. It's, it's incredibly important, especially in the USA. Uh, which is not the easiest thing to do in today's market. I mean, if you're talking about Europe, we can get there anytime we want and we can, you know, play in front of people and they know our material, they know our records. Most of the people in the U.S. are really fans of the first three records. And they're kind of surprised to know that there's other albums available. But when we go and do shows in, uh, in the States, we did one in um, Chicago, well, maybe about a year ago, two or three of them rather, with... Um, uh, with that being sweet, and it was a great it was a great combination band. The both of us together worked well, but the people there were were you know they were looking for love don't lie pleasure palace and can't find my way home, and uh, and those songs, and they were surprised to hear other stuff. You know maybe we made new fans that way, but it is important to be out there and let people know what you're doing. It really is. And now, you, of course, you've got guitarist Jimmy Bell, who's gone and joined Autograph. What does that mm -hmm. mean for House of Lords? Is he going to be doing sort of a, a two-timer, like Kiss would say? Or or do you yeah. at some point think, well, we might have to get a full-time guy? Well, I think, you know, it's, you know, I've been thinking about it now for, you know, a few months because I've had the time. The record is done, and obviously Jimmy is part of that record. What goes forward it's really, you know, I have to really think this out, think this through. Where do I go from here with the next move? Because obviously, you know, Jimmy's contributions to to House of Lords from the point he started to up to now has been very valuable. As is um, BJ's as a drummer. You know, these are these have been my guys for for the past well, 10, 12, 13 years, I guess. So. And, and you got to understand the market today. You give, I understand why they have to do this. It's not like I don't. I understand it completely, 100%. I just have to look out for the brand that I have and figure out what I want to do next. Do I want to? Do I want to do a um, a reunion? You know, that's always been thought about and talked about. You know, would you guys? You know, I've been called by many people to put uh, together the original band. Will I do it now? I don't know. I'd, I'd still have to talk to the other guys to see if that's something they're interested in doing. Well, all right. Uh, hmm. That, that gives me pause for a lot of questions. Uh, all right. Mm -hmm. let, let's talk about this thing you said about the original band. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you get, you know, Chuck Wright uh, is is there and, and Ken. Ken is touring with somebody as well. Do you get yeah. that that classic lineup? And then you, do you contact Greg and get him to come back to the fold? And, and how... How willing would he be to come back to the fold? You think? Well, Gre Greg. Yeah. Or or the other. Or the well, other. all of them. I, I believe that. Well, I believe that Chuck Wright 
would definitely be open to it, even though, you know, Quiet Right is going through a, um, you know, they've, they've got uh, other things that they're dealing with right now. And I think that things are on kind of on pause until until they find out what's going on. But I think if, if, if I approached him with um, a reunion record, he would be open. And I think Ken Mary would be open. Now, I don't know if it would be Lanny Cordola or if it would be Doug Aldridge that I that I would call. But the original lineup would be a Lanny Cordola. You know, if you're really going for the uh, original lineup of the first album, because we've, we've had three different bands actually in the first three records. Second album had Doug Aldrich on guitar and the third album had uh, somebody else on guitar and Tommy Aldrich on drums. So it's, um, where do you go? Which one do you choose? Well, if you, if you accept a fan's perspective, I would probably go with Doug Aldrich just because his profile since those mm-hmm. days with White Snake and, and Day Daisies sure. and stuff is probably more recognizable. And as a fan, I'd go, ooh, Doug's back. That's kind of yeah. cool. Um, yeah. you know, I'm pretty sure I could get Doug. I'm pretty sure Doug would be open to an album. I don't know about a tour, you know, because he's doing so many things and so busy. You know, so I don't, you know, if I was to do just the record, um, that would be a, a, a really good thought. And we worked so well together on that second record. It, we really did. I mean, his, his contributions to what he played really brought to life Sahara. And so he would really be somebody I would be interested in. And, and Greg Jufria, for the, for the mere fact that he has been the only keyboard player in House of Lords. When I reformed House of Lords, I didn't add a keyboard player. You know, it's not like, and there's a there's a couple of reasons. Uh, financial number one, because going out on tour with somebody with a big rig is a big expense, and and people weren't, you know, you're not getting the same kind of money you were when you could tour with, you know, semi tractor trailers to load your and and, and haul your equipment. So. Um, I think that Greg might be interested in the album part. Would he be interested in the tour? That all depends on what the album, uh, how it comes, uh, gets reviewed and people feel about it. Yeah, that's true. And 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 quite frankly, real rock music doesn't have keyboards. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so I'm, I'm kidding. Don't ever say that to Greg. Yeah. No, or no, David Bryan, or <laughs> or the guys yeah, in Europe. Yeah. Uh, but our, let, let me. You 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 mentioned moving the House of Lords brand forward, and and fans sometimes get upset when you say a brand and not a band. But ultimately, that's what it is. I mean, it, it's you know. Um, yeah. But you have done solo work with Craving and Lay It All on Me and all and some of the other yeah. ones. How do you decide, for example, for this album in 2020? Well, these are not solo kind of songs. These are a household. Mm-hmm. How do you make that distinction, and how do you decide which way you're going to brand it? It's a good question. I mean, sometimes it's just a matter of me just sitting down and and listening to what I have and kind of putting things in, in, in folders and saying this belongs here and that belongs there. Well, the reasoning behind it, I guess it's just a feeling I have at the time that I listen to it. Um, doing a solo record for me at this point, I love doing them, but I really want to do other things with those uh, with those records because I can do anything I want with House of Lords as long as I, you know, are you, are you still there? Yes. Hello? Yes, I am still oh. here and... 
uh, as we said, because they're they the city has decided to cut trees around us, and you can hear those wonderful chainsaws in the back. I put myself oh. on mute while you answer. Well, the reason why I, there's somebody beeping me and Patrick Johansson, um, who's uh, working with me now on drums. So he's he's um, beeping me, and I guess because of the video we're shooting on Saturday, so he probably has some questions, but he'll that can wait. Um, I I really, you know, separating the two for me, I got to really think that I can do what I want with these songs and not have to worry about how it's going to go over with House of Lords fans. You know, sometimes when you start doing that and you start analyzing what the fans are going to think, they're 50-50 on most of the stuff you do anyway. So somebody's going to be pissed off. I mean, if, you have, if I've ever looked at a review on an album and I said, this one, I know I've got, you know, a lot of stuff that, the fans will like and yes there'll be 50 percent that like it and then 50 percent that go i wish there were more keyboards or i wish they did that no no fan is asking for more keyboards none none (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that's Uh, funny i i I, listen i I like my rock uh, with a a four piece and uh you know but uh, but i but i do appreciate a good keyboard i love bon jovi so there you go uh so let let me quickly ask you you know listen david bryan does does a good job um, you know, yeah. but uh, if you were starting to stick keyboards on ACDC, we might have to have a yeah, chat. Yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll have a chat you. about that. Uh, real quick, yeah. uh, some of the old stuff. Um, you worked with Andy Johns. Now, Andy Johns is not just a producer. He was one of these mega producers of the day. What was that yes. experience like? Because every time I ask a band who's worked with Andy, I never hear one of these... Oh, he was awful. Oh, he was addicted. It's always about how much he loved the music and loved the band and tried to make the band sound as good as the band could sound. So what was your experience with Andy Johns? Well, for me, I I was intimidated from day one only because uh, that was my first band. My first major act uh, was House of Lords. So I went into the studio and I knew who this guy was. You know, I, I grew up with what he did. So uh, the first day in the studio was a little intimidating, um, just the way he was talking to me about things, how we were going to approach doing the vocals, how he liked to do them, you know, and and which meaning that he likes to catch, um, you know, full performances. And uh, as far as he did with me anyway, full performances. And maybe um, if there was something missing, we would punch it in and stuff like that, rather than doing five or six vocals and comping them which is something that, you know, I thought everybody did. But in this case, he wanted, so uh, uh, that album I had to do with him in seven days. I had seven days to do um, 10 songs, 11 songs. I can't remember what it was. And uh, he did a lot of talking. In other words, I would do a take and then he'd be on the the mic telling me a story. And after a while, I I remember saying to him, Andy, I'm losing my my um my mac daddy if you want to call it that whatever i was in a groove and i wanted to keep it there and he came out and he kind of got me in a headlock and said now listen dude i've been doing this for 20 years and you have to listen to what i say and he was only joking with me but i remember the headlock so um Mm -hmm. i think that after the session was done after the album was released and i listened and I thought he captured the best of what I could do, what I had to offer. And there was a lot of live moments in there. So I, I have no complaints that way. As far as a man and, a, and a, a, a good friend, 
he became a good friend. We spent many times at his house in Mount in um, up in the hills, the Hollywood Hills, and um, you know it, it was a, just a great relationship. I wish we he had done the second and third record, but something happened, and I really don't like to talk about that, but. Um, other than that, he to me, he was amazing to work with. He really was. Now, as I battle these uh, chainsaws in the back, I, I want to ask you about Can't Find My Way Home because there are some bands, when you listen to the Beatles twist and shout and stuff, where they are covers and you go, yeah, but that's that's the actual version. That's the one that people know and love. And I, and I feel that way about the House right. of Lords Can't Find My Way Home. Uh, how did that song come to you? Did, did the producer come to you and say, Dudes, we need you to cover a make a cover song. So you're going to do this one. Was it just a song you loved forever? And and how important was it in the band's career? After all, I, I think it was very important in the band's career. Absolutely, hands down. It happened. Uh, we had finished doing the first album. We started writing the second album. And Doug and I were in the studio. We were we had a small rehearsal studio and an Akai twelve track in there. I brought Doug in, and I, and, I, and I remember mentioning to him, I loved this song, always loved it, but we would have to do something different with it. We couldn't start and end acoustically. So maybe we should do something Zeppelin-like uh, in, the, uh, in the second section. And that's where Doug came in and came, with, came up with that descending chord pattern thing that goes down. I put a vocal on it, and we presented it to the band. They loved it. Um, they absolutely loved it. And then, um, so we had the song, we knew what we wanted. The record company said, no problem. We love it. We're going to go, we're going to use this song, but they didn't want to use it as the lead off track. They wanted to use something completely different. And that's where James stepped in, said, nope, this is where you got it. You guys have to release this first as the first, uh, song from Sahara. And they, but, but it heads with this, but in the end, we got what we wanted. That song ended up being, you know, really setting the stage for House of Lords. Had we had that same amount of promotion on Demons Down, uh, it would have been a different story altogether. Oh, I, We I, had momentum. Oh, I fully agree. And uh, so another song I want to ask you about is this song, Heart on the Line, which uh, Cheap Trick, 26 years later, released on their Bang Zoom Crazy Hello album. But it is yeah. it is a song written by Rick Nelson, and Rick was sort of in and out of the House of Lord camp. Where did the relationship with Rick come from, and how did you get this song? Was it written for you, or did he just say, hey, I've got this song lying around, you want to hear? How did that connection come? Because Cheap Trick, man, one of the greatest, and no keyboards. Yes. <laughs> Again, yes. Um, well, we toured with Cheap Trick on that first album. So we had we had a, a long relationship with them that way, being on the road with them. Um, and I think Greg had something to do with that song. He had heard it and said, you know, this would be great for House of Lords. And and um, Rick actually came in and did the solo on the record. So it was um, there was a, I think he thought it was a good match for us. I love the song. I mean, we played it out live, too. You know, it was um it wasn't my favorite of all the songs we did by far. I mean, I, I had uh, other songs that were my favorites, but I did love the song. It's a fantastic, fantastic song. Um, let me yeah. just get over here quickly to uh, to Gene. Now, you 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 t you just mentioned that Gene was uh, essential in getting that song out, and it was his suggestion that no, we've got to go with this. But in terms of a record company guy and being on the Simmons record. 
was it just sort of a, a storefront and every so often Gene would show up or was he very active in, in guiding bands and guiding House of Lords? Let me put it this way. On the first album I did, he was in that booth with the vocal booth with me when I was doing Under Blue Skies. And it was basically just because it was a little different than, you know, than stuff I've done, but he was giving me pointers on what to do. And I think at the end, uh, what he helped me with, you know, was a help. It wasn't like he was, you know, a hinder. And no, he was hands down on the first album and the second album. On the third album, he was not. But the first two, absolutely. Um, he took me on a promotional tours because I was the only guy in the band that didn't have a name. So for two weeks, I went out on promotional tours with just him. So we would go to different places, radio stations. Uh, we went to the House of Lords Beauty Salon in Toronto, Canada. And, I, you know, just because it was House of Lords, you know, and, and it made a name. You know, it started generating, you know, this is James Christian. And um, he did the same thing on MTV. Literally introduced me to MTV that way. And then they had a little special about House of Lords and played the, the debut single, which was I Want to Be Loved, and talked about and talked about me. So, I, I mean, he was great. Yeah, you, know, you, you got to love Gene. Uh, in terms of um, uh, the importance of new music, let me ask you that, because you do, of course, have New World, New Eyes, which is coming out in June, mm -hmm. delayed only by 30 days. How important yeah. is it for a band like yourself to produce and have new music? Because you could, of course, just go out on a, you know, a classic rock package, go to the M3 festival, throw your name out on, on a marquee and say House of Lords and fans will show up because you have a pedigree. Uh, right. Is it important to actually be creative and make new music or can you just say, eh, forget it. This is the last album you're going to get. And after that, you'll get our 15 greatest and just enjoy it. Well, you know, Personally, I feel that it is important to have new music if you're in a band. Um, but to be honest with you, most of the places want the three out, the first three albums, Can't Find My Way Home, Love Don't Lie. You know, they have their list of songs and I want to be loved that they want to hear. Uh, you can't ever break that. I mean, that because that was so heavily publicized when it was released that these other releases that we do now have a more of a limited release as far as who gets to hear it. Europe gets to hear them all because they buy, I would say, 90% of our records. So when we go to Europe, they know every single other album that we have and every song that's on it. And we come to the States, they don't really. So and you really have, it depends on where you are. We were just in Japan three years ago. We played at the Loud Park and um, they really knew the the earlier material, not so much the older material. I mean, the, when I say early, the earlier material, the first three albums. And they knew a few of the songs from the um, other albums, but mostly we got that gig because of what we did in the past, not we did not with what we did in the few, in the present. In the present. Well, yeah, hey, listen, that's, that's the importance yeah. of, of branding. And uh, I'll finish on this as I continue to battle these uh, chainsaws in the background. Uh, uh -huh. But the the live in the UK House of Lords album uh, with the band uh, origin you know the uh, the reunion lineup in two thousand five, uh, how did that sort yeah. of reunion come about and and why didn't it go forward in the years uh, following that? Well, the, the the one reason was an album that we released called Power and the Myth, 
which was um, a real serious departure from anything we've ever done. And um, I, I don't I don't put blame on anyone, you know, and I, I had nothing really to write on the record. They came to me with the record. Um, I didn't think it was really House of Lords, but, you know, the guys in the band wanted to do it um, separate from Greg Jafria. So we did that record and it didn't do well. It did not do well at all. So Serafino at Frontiers was very upset and he really wanted a House of Lords record. That's why he signed it. He signed because he wanted House of Lords. So he asked me, do you think that you can create what House of Lords was doing on the first three records? And I said, yes, I can, but probably not with the people that we have because they're not going to want to take those steps to do that. So that's how the the new House of Lords got put together and we put together World Upside Down. And Serafina was a very happy record exec. And um, that was the start of a really nice relationship to do more records. Yeah. And and by the way, the, the, the only thing I remember about Power in the Myth is the actual album cover. I don't remember any of the songs, but I do remember the songs on World Upside Down. So I guess both yeah. you and Serafina were right because... <laughs> Some some yeah, are memorable, I mean, I, you know. I listen, yeah, I, I listen. The musicianship power in the myth is great. They didn't give me much to sing on, so it was like you know nothing was in my key. Nobody was going to be re-recording it, and I just you know I think an alternative singer would have done a better job on those songs than I could because I suck at alternative. But give me a melody and give me something to work with and range and stuff, then I I know what I'm doing. I have my home there. So that's why doing World Upside Down was a no-brainer. I knew exactly what to do. I wrote those songs with uh, Jimmy and uh, Jeff Kent, and we knew what we were going for. So we did it, and we wrote it, and everybody was happy. So, And you produced it, so you made sure you controlled the vision, which was the smart thing to do, let's be honest. Right. So anyway. Yes. <laughs> after, after, after all the years with Andy and David Sutter and all these people that I worked with, I lived, I was there before they cracked the tape open and there when they were putting it back in the box because I wanted to learn. And I, I, I'm not a mixer, but I know what, I, what a, a song needs as far as layering tracks and putting things on, you know, on, on record that pop out of the speakers. So I had my place and I knew what it was and I took advantage of it. Yeah, well, you did you did well uh, on that. I am going to uh, to uh, give up to the <laughs> going to give in to the gods of the chainsaws, and I'm going to say thank you. <laughs> An absolute pleasure. And uh, I bought those for early albums, and and uh, you know I got serviced the other ones after that because of what I do now. And it's just been uh-huh. a great catalog over the years. It's 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 a very well, very strong catalog. So kudos to you and thank you. Thank you, Mitch, and thanks for some really nice good questions. It brought me back and uh, had a chance to really reminisce myself. Oh, there you go. And, and on that, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Have a have a great day, and uh, let's uh, let's hopefully catch a House of Lords uh, show soon. It, we need it. Take care. Oh, by the way, say hi to Julie Moss for me because uh, Julie now Moss. That you say you're from Montreal. <laughs> Julie Moss. Julie Moss. She recorded one of my one of my songs. You know. Oh, did she? And, and she's See, married. I have a go- I have a platinum. Yeah, I have a platinum record right here from Julie Moss. She recorded uh, What's Forever For in French. Oh, there you go. And it she's married number, to, uh, to Corey number. Hart, I think, right? That, that's right, yeah. Uh, and he's got a new single that drops tomorrow. So there you go. I will make sure I mention that. Yeah, absolutely, you do. Thank you. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. 
This has been Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. For more exclusive content and interviews, subscribe on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and many more. Follow Mitch on all the socials, especially Twitter, at Mitch LaFon, and on Instagram, at Mitch underscore LaFon. Get your Mitch merch now at loudtracks.com slash Mitch.